This is episode number 12 with Michelle Rowan. Hi there, before we jump into this episode, uh, just a couple of things I want to mention. First of all, this episode was recorded with my friend Michelle Rowan, as you would have heard already, um, and she was sitting in India and uh, she really went through the trouble of going to, um, I think, finding a cyber cafe somewhere close to where she lived to get internet connection, uh, which is not so easy to get um, where specifically she was based uh, in India during the interview. So. Um, not only do I want to thank her, I, I want to just encourage you to be a little bit patient with the recording. It's not the best production quality, and there are a couple of glitches, but I promise there are only a couple of them. So if you bear with it, this um, this conversation is just full of so many nuggets because it's really such an open conversation that I had with a friend. It's very casual, very relaxed, but there's just um, bites of wisdom after wisdom, which if you read the show notes uh, over at the Life Optimize show or on my blog, uh, you, you would have seen that there's just a lot that we cover um, in a very, very uh, sort of rapid succession. Another thing I want to quickly mention is AuthenticInfluence.net. After a while, after a bit of a hiatus, I'm doing a public event. Um, I've obviously done a lot of speaking and training in my career, uh, which you've probably heard of and me referencing and mentioning in uh, various conversations. But it's been a while since I've done a public event, and the thing that really inspired me was... Well, it's explained on the website. If you go to AuthenticInfluence.net, you'll see a little bit of information about the event, but what you'll actually see um, taking up most of the page is a bit of a rant that I wrote. And it's a, you know, call it an article, call it a rant. The title of the, of, of the rant is really exposing the lies and dirty secrets of business education. I haven't just said that to be controversial. I haven't just said that to, um, you know, arouse a lot of curiosity. It doesn't hurt, but... Really, it is very genuine. It's coming from a place of authenticity. And it's coming out of a lot of conversations I've had with people who have been frustrated with the business education world, getting sucked into becoming seminar junkies, being sold on a lot of hopes and dreams, and being sold on this idea that there's always one more thing that you need to learn before you get the golden ticket, before you get the magical key that's going to unlock everything for you. I'm a little bit sick and tired of this, but more importantly, I know a lot of people are sick and tired of it. And not only are they sick and tired of it because it frustrates them, but they're sick and tired of it because they see an entire community, an entire culture being built around this ethos that, you know, in in one sense, in the personal development sense, you're you're enough and it's all about personal development and self-improvement. But in the other sense, in the business space of it, you're never enough and there's always something more to achieve before you can even start seeing results. I've been fortunate to have a lot of great mentors and trainers in my life, but I've also seen a lot of shady uh, stuff that's happened behind the scenes and a lot of things that you see up front about the glamour of the industry. It's not really congruent with what the realities of the industry are. This event that I'm doing with my friend Anthony Chansamud is it's not a um, you know it's not a night of naming and shaming. I I won't be doing that at all. Neither will Anthony, but we will be talking about you know what what is it? How do you actually determine whether a business education expert um, event a consultant coach etc etc is actually being authentic? And what can we learn from the exploitation and manipulation of branding and marketing, the science and psychology behind how people are seduced into thinking particular ways and how they're really exploited, manipulated, um, you know, tricked into really believing certain things 
about how things are done, even when they're not getting results from them. It's something that I'm really fascinated by. I alluded to it in many conversations before as well. And now I thought, you know what, it's time to actually take this to stage and bring it to a broader audience. It's still a very exclusive event. There's only about 40 places available. But if you go to AuthenticInfluence.net, you can have a look at it. Uh, You can read the rant. Uh, I'd love your feedback. I'd love your comments. There's a little space on the page to uh, leave a comment about what you feel about this as well. And if you're in Sydney or if you can make it to the event in Sydney on Thursday the 3rd of July, uh, I'd love to see you there. All right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Life Optimized Show, where every week you'll hear fascinating and introspective conversations with inspiring thought leaders from all around the world to help you optimize your business, leadership, and life. Now, here's your host, Dev Singh, international executive, business, and leadership coach, and self-professed philosopher and examiner of what makes the most optimized people in the world tick. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Life Optimized Show. I'm really, really excited to have someone I've been wanting to have on for a long time. Um, and it's a really good friend of mine who it's just very hard to track down because she's always floating around somewhere in the world, um, usually in India. <coughs> and she's just got such an inspiring story. And it's always so much fun to uh, to talk to her that it's really one of the people who um, you know is not here to talk about any particular thing that she does, but really about how she goes through and optimizes her life, which is truly very unique and very inspiring in a very grounded way. I'm I'm genuinely always very excited to uh, speak with Michelle, Michelle Rowan, and I thought it would be really, really fun to have Michelle on the show um, to just have a chat, as I normally do um, with her as a friend. But, you know, it gives me a chance to ask a little bit more about her journey, how she uh, went about this journey. Very interesting story going from um, corporate world sort of profession in product management to essentially being a artist living as a digital nomad um, across India and just floating about doing the most amazing things, um, which she will never admit to, of course, <laughs> and, uh, and having a blast. And I think it's one of those stories that people really put up on a pedestal and they say, that, you know, wow, I wish I could do that, but they never really do anything about it. So I, I really want people to see how, not only how possible this is, but how accessible and normalized it is um, in this day and age, and how, you know, you can really follow your passion if you're actually clear about what it is that you want to do. And even if you're not specific necessarily about what you want to do, how easy and comfortable it is, you know, especially for us in living in fairly first world circumstances to just get out there and explore how my, how we might want to optimize our life. So Michelle, thank you very much for making the time to have this chat on the show. I'm really, uh, yeah, really excited to have you. Oh, thank oh, you welcome. for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you right now? I wish we could... I wish we could be doing this face to face because right now I'm actually in a beautiful part of India called Dharamshala and I'm uh, looking out towards the gorgeous mountains. I can see Trion, the, the mountain top, there's snow still covering it, there's birds, there's rose garden, there's dogs and cows and goats and everything everywhere. So, And, uh, and I make a pretty good chai, so <laughs> it would have been great if you could be here in person, but um, you know, Skype will have to do while I'm, as you said, a, a bit of a digital nomad. <laughs> I'd, I'd love that, Mishy. One day I'm gonna chase you down uh, in India as well, I'm sure. <laughs> 
I'm uh, sure it will happen. I'll be here for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we, we won't find a Lindt Cafe out there. I'll, uh, we'll have to make some tea. <laughs> <laughs> So for people listening to the episode right now, they've probably guessed um, that, you know, going by your name and also your accent, uh, you're not Indian, you're, you're Australian and you grew up I in Australia. Am. Tell us a little bit about how your journey started. And obviously that's a loaded question. I mean, you know, you're not, you're not a little kid. Um, so how, how did it, uh, let's, let's start from the fact that, you know, you got into uh, product management. And in fact, the last time we caught up in Sydney, you were uh, telling me that even that was actually quite fortuitous and it just sort of happened. Yeah, I think I've been quite lucky that um, a lot of my career has has just sort of come to me rather than um, me actually going and chasing it. So with product management, it was definitely something that I fell into. Um, I, I don't think that there's really any courses that you can even even now go and do in product management that actually equip you to do the job <laughs> um, so yeah it came about as a suggestion from a colleague saying you know you should just try product management um, I was already in digital technology at that point and um, working more as a, a project management uh, kind of facilitator and, and those types of roles um, and then moved more into the management side of, of you know actually getting uh, products out the door, digital products out the door. So, you know, whilst that was a lot of, uh, it was really interesting and, and I learned a lot about business and I learned a lot about digital products and marketing and, and things like that, um, I got to a point where I realized that I was, a lot of the, the teams that I was managing and people that I was working with, they were all working remotely as well. They were in the Philippines, they were in India. They were in, you know, whichever part of the world, uh, you know, that it made sense to have teens there. And I was one of the only ones in Australia. So I thought, well, I might as well go and live wherever I want to live. So I packed up my house and moved to India with um, not really much of a clue as to what to do or where I'd be going. I just had a one-way trip to Delhi and, um, you know, my laptop and, and that was really about it. And I'd lined up a couple of freelance jobs before I left. So, you know... Making that change actually for me, once I decided to do it, I found that the community was so supportive, it was almost hard not to do it. <laughs> you know, so many people were, um, you know, rallying behind me uh, once I, I put it out there um, to the world that, you know, that was what I wanted to do. And I think that that was actually one of the big lessons. Once I, once I decided what it was that I wanted to do, I told everybody that that's what I was going to do. And I asked them if they could help me. Um, I had I had so many contacts for India by the end of, you know, a three-month period of, of kind of contact position that I actually had too many people to follow up. I couldn't actually uh, even, you know, get to all of those people. Um, even though I've been here now in India for nearly three years, I've still got contacts, you know, looming <laughs> that I plan to go and meet <laughs> from those early moments of investigation, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's important, you know, once you once you know what you want to do, tell everyone, you know. The worst that will happen is, is that, you know, you don't end up doing it and, and you know, it doesn't, uh, there's no harm there if you've investigated something. Yeah. And I think I found that people genuinely, when you go out and ask people for help, um, you know, most people want to help. <laughs> that's that's pretty much the lesson that I've learned over the last couple of years. Yeah, that's true. And I don't think it takes any sort of dramatic uh, life, less, you know, life experiences to uh, learn this. It's more that 
I think those opportunities are always there present, but most people are afraid to even ask. Something I've always found really inspiring about your story, and I, I already, obviously I know your story, so it doesn't uh, shock me as much, but I know a lot of people having heard how naturally you just talked about moving from Australia to India, did a double take and they're like, what, wait, wait a minute. And a question that probably, <laughs> a question that probably pops up in a lot of people's mind, I'm sure of this is, okay, what was his name? You know, did you, did you have some sort of dramatic breakup <laughs> or did you go through some sort of near death experience, some sort of life transformation? Or, you know, did you have uh, you know, uh, do you know, do you know what it was? Do you know what it was? It was that, um, it got to the point where it was more scary staying in Sydney and, you know, leading that life. To me, that that became scarier than picking up my stuff and moving to a foreign country. Yeah. So that was actually the motivation. Um, but that's know, such there a... There was a breakup. <laughs> there was a breakup and there was all of that kind of stuff as well. But it was actually the point where I, the key motivator for me was that I was, you know, I'm a product manager at heart. You know, I still do a lot of analysis even for my artwork I still do you know all of all of the same you know goal-oriented stuff and things like this and and I literally you know I'd I'd laid out you know the pros and cons of staying in Sydney and the pros and cons of leaving and and I looked at the list and I thought you know staying in Sydney for me at that time staying um you know, in a job that I liked, but it wasn't fulfilling me, <laughs> um, you know, staying in a city that I like, but, you know, it, it, I wanted more greenery around me. I wanted more animals around me. I wanted um, more of a yogic lifestyle as well, you know, being around a community where people uh, kind of speak the same language as me more, <laughs> um, even though they don't speak the same language here. That's kind of ironic. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, finding, finding out that, you know, when you look at your life and, and sometimes standing still is actually, you know, for me, that was actually scarier than picking up and going. And, and I know that I, I meet a lot of travelers in the same boat as me, you know, they're, um, uh, somehow it's easier to move and change than it is to stay still. But I, th- I think you know, that in um, itself, and, and I, that, that in itself is so inspiring because a lot of people expect um, and I think the lesson in that really that I want to share with people is that a lot of people wait for some dramatic yeah. force in their life exactly. to shift them. And, and whilst, you know, you, you, you say you've, uh, you know, you went through that kind of normal stuff as well that people go through, you're a very pragmatic person. From what I know you, you're very pragmatic. In fact, one of the things I loved about your Kickstarter campaign, which we'll talk about in a bit as well, that <laughs> you actually wrote on there, you even created a Kanban wall for my uh, for your art, <laughs> which I found Kanban wall. Kanban wall, yeah, which I found hilarious. That was, I'm sure a lot of people don't know what that is, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, but the point is, yeah, we'll leave it at that for now. But the point is that um, you know you're a pragmatic person. You're not a cliche. Like I wouldn't count you in a cliche of going through some sort of dramatic experience. And I also wouldn't count you in the cliche of, um, you know, the stereotype that people resonate with that, oh, this person who grew up in the Western society wanted to seek out enlightenment, so they go to India, such a typical thing to do. You're definitely not like that. <laughs> I, I can vouch for that personally. And I think the naturalness and, and the gracefulness and the elegance with which you just normalize your transition, I think that's something that people should take inspiration from because it just goes to show that you know, if you're attuned with yourself, with your life, if you're self-aware enough to know that you're not happy, you're not fulfilled, then the world is a big place. There are a lot of options. Yeah. There are a lot of yeah. opportunities to explore. And instead of waiting around for some sort of, you know, dramatic rock bottom kind of scenario, 
uh, you can just get out there and explore your life and, and optimize it yeah. in whichever way you want. <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, there's, um, you know, my life was actually really good in Sydney. I had a really good, you know, well-paying mm. job um, <laughs> with, you know, you know, all of the, you know, everything ticked the box. I just personally didn't feel that fulfilled there. And one of the, one of the big things that came up that, you know, everybody, uh, pretty much every single female that I meet that's traveling, we've all had the same discussion with our peers and friends back home is that, you know, oh, what are you running away from, you know? And it's, to mm. me, that's, um, it's more, what am I running to? You know, what, where, what can I go and chase? You know, what, you know, we've got this opportunity, especially coming from countries like Australia, where we just have so many opportunities available to us from the education that, that we take for granted a lot of the time, um, you know, through to our, our health support and, and, you know, things like this. And, um, you know, I think it's really, it's really important to embrace that as a, you know, especially for me as a, as a Westerner in, in India, you know, realizing that, you know, I'm, I, I have this opportunity, I can go and do whatever I want. I'm not bound by uh, as many cultural um, restrictions as I'd say, for, I don't know the stat, but 99% of the world probably, you know, um, and just, just having that freedom and allowing myself to have that freedom without the, the guilt and the judgment and, and things like this has been really important. Um, and, you know, likewise, like I said before, you know, seeking out support from friends um, was really uh, motivating for me, you know, to, to realize that, you know, not all of my friends are in the same boat as me. Some of them can't just pick up and leave, but they're still happy to support me. One of my friends looks after all of my paintings back in Sydney just because she likes the fact that I'm over here painting, <laughs> you know, so it's, um, you know, realizing that there's, there's friendships there that can be, um, you know, mutually beneficial um, at, at a really deep level um, has been really important to me. So I just want to take a step back to the point where you did make that decision about, you yeah. know, finally making that move. Um, every time I've spoken to you, it's it's come across like it was never a big deal for you. And, and maybe it wasn't, which is fine. <laughs> but I want to kind of generalize this in the case that Basically, you were at a point in your life where you wanted more. You were hungry for, uh, let's say, a higher level of fulfillment. You wanted to optimize that sense of, you know, um, exploring and having freedom and, you know, getting more fulfillment out of your life. And it required you to take actions that most people would consider dramatic. Now, did you actually go through any period of time or any kind of stages where you've, you know, you, maybe you doubted yourself or some fear kicked in or any kind of hesitation or doubt kicked in? And... How did you deal with that? Because I really want people who are listening to this thinking, well, it was easy for her because of a million different excuses that they might come up with in their head. But if they're thinking about making a change in their circumstances, in their lifestyle, to get outside of their comfort zone so that they can you know, go after, as you said, running towards um, a higher level of fulfillment, and they've got these doubts and fears coming in their head, how can they deal with it? So did you have those and how did you deal with it? So I don't think that fear and doubt for me, I don't know that they'll ever go away, but it's, um, you know, I have that whether whether I'm at home in Australia or at home in India, that's something that, that stays with you. And I think the change for me of what happened over the last sort of five or six years is that I've sort of um, used that fear and doubt to be uh, motivating, <laughs> you know, to, to allow myself to have a little bit of fear. I think it's kind of healthy, you know, it's, it's good to feel... Um, you know, just, you know, obviously having a little bit of doubt is quite grounding sometimes and having 
just the right level of fear. Obviously, you don't want to be terrified everywhere that you go. <laughs> um, but, you know, so long as, I think for me as a, you know, as a digital nomad, you know, so long as I know where I, you know, that I've got somewhere to sleep and somewhere to eat, <laughs> mm. I'm generally, you know, I, I know that I'm in a safe place. Um, but, you know, conquering uh, those fear and doubts, the other thing that, that really helped me actually is a tool that I've been using for a couple of years called Best Year Yet. And that's a, a series of sort of 10 questions that you go through each year um, that helps you with your goal planning. Oh, okay. and, and what it does is it, um, it essentially asks you, uh, you know, a series of questions. Um, the first one is, you know, what were your greatest achievements over the last years? You know, the last year, sorry. Um, what were your greatest disappointments and then how did you learn from that? And, you know, even just answering those three simple questions, uh, they help me to stay to stay grounded. And, you know, when you talk about breaking through fear and doubt, uh, for me, going through the process of best year yet has actually been really helpful, um, especially as I've been traveling because it has, I, I've got my goals for the year. I know what I'm doing regardless of where I'm living. And I know what's important to me um, in terms of the roles that I play in life. You know, um, my role isn't just as, you know, a, a traveler and an artist. My role is as a daughter, it's as a friend, it's it's so much more. Um, and that shouldn't matter where I am in the world, Those that's still me. So, you know, I feel really lucky to have been introduced to Best Year yet um, just before I was leaving for, for India, actually, because it has actually been a really good grounding. Um, each time that I, I have that fear and doubt, I sort of look to... Um, you know, the goals and the, uh, with Best Year Yet, you have, you basically have goals, um, guidelines and a sort of mantra that, that you can say to yourself when you're feeling a little bit lost. Mm -hmm. And just having that, having, having a tool, whether it's Best Year Yet or whatever works for you, you know, just having a tool so that you know when you, when you hit that fear and doubt, you've got something that you can go to. Um, that tool might be your best friend that you lean <laughs> on, or it might be, um, you know, something like Best Year Yet. But you know, knowing uh, knowing where you can get access to help, I think, is really important in breaking through those that, that fear and that doubt. Because for me, I don't think the fear and doubt will ever go away, but it's how I manage it that's changed. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So it's not <clears throat> it's not like you get to a point where you need to make a dramatic decision, and then all of a sudden you know, you've burst through this, um, you know, this, this fear and doubt and then it's gone. It's, it's kind of more like um, something that's really about you as a person as opposed to a situation and you're always managing and you're always dealing with it. I, it, makes me, it makes me really appreciate the, the word optimization in itself because it's really about making the effective use of your resources. And um, also the word that comes to mind is uh, Kaizen, which is, you know, a kind of a Japanese Zen uh, sort of term for constant um, minimal improvements where you're always just chipping away, making little improvements step by step. And what I get from your story is that it's not really that you dealt in a conclusive way with your fear and doubts um, and then made the decision. You actually made the decision, took the action and kind of dealt with the fear and doubts as they came along um, anyway, or the fear and doubts were there and you started dealing with them, but you made, you took action anyway. You didn't wait for one or the other to kind of be at a point of completion um, to before you took action. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I think, I think expecting that, um, 
you know, that there's a magical potion for getting rid of fear and doubt. I mean, look, definitely it, it, things do get easier over time no matter what you're doing. So, hmm. you know, traveling gets easier over time. I, I definitely have less fear going to a train station in India now than I did when I first started. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> but... Um, That's something I might have yeah, to learn just, from you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'll ever get over that in India. I, I'm happy to take you to the train station. I, I've got to say, though, it's quite, I, I am quite lucky as a solo female traveler. Everyone is very helpful. I'm not uh, sure that's that true. it's the same for the guys, so I've got to say. Um, you know, but yeah, like I said, it's, you know, fear and doubt, I think, will always be there. You know, it's like, you know, you're always going to have some natural healthy level of fear. Um, and, you know, I think that that, that can also be really um that's where some vulnerability comes from and that can actually make you really human which people you know people respond to that funnily enough um you know so i think you know having having a healthy level of of doubt as well um you know enables you to constantly question and ask questions of yourself you know are you actually moving in the right direction um you know to to analyze your life you know I think that's really, it's easy to do in India. Everyone's doing it, (laughs) or at least all the foreigners are. So, you know, maybe it's the culture for it. Yeah, that's interesting. We have a lot in common, and a couple of things that um, I find really interesting that we have in common that is not so typical is, A, I think we both value minimalism in the sense that, you know, you you optimize your life not to add more things to it, but actually getting rid of things, whether that's material things or um, emotional and psychological and mental baggage. And to me, something that I find really inspiring and a bit of a lesson from your story as well is that when you stepped outside of your comfort zone, it wasn't necessarily so you could achieve more. It's so that you could place yourself in a position of having more simplicity in your life to figure out what you wanted and, you know, just kind of enjoy the journey more um, by way of being simpler, living simpler and, you know, we, we talk about this in a different context a lot as well in terms of, mm-hmm. um, you know, dealing with the environment and dealing with your environment and your impact on the planet and all of those kinds of things. But I think at a fundamental level, a lot of people do actually think that I need to optimize my life. I need to step outside my comfort zone so I can have more and achieve more when they're not really even sure what it is that they want to have more of or achieve more of. And I think it's it's great to be reminded of the benefit of stepping outside of your comfort zone <laughs> to actually get rid of baggage first, to put yourself in a position of simplicity, cut all the crap and have that, like create that space for yourself mentally, emotionally and literally as well, where, you know, you can look outside to um, to, to a green field with, with cows roaming around and maybe some monkeys and, and think about, you know, what, what, what am I doing with my life? What do I want to do with my life? What do I actually care about? Um, so I think that's really cool. The other thing that um, and, and I think that it's really yep. I think it's I think it's really important. To, it's important to know that um, you know that's something which I think you know it's possible to do that wherever you are in the world. I was living like this a lot even in Sydney before I left um, to you know travel overseas, and I think it's something which doesn't necessarily have to be associated with the whole you know letting go of your house and letting go of, of everything and packing your backpack and, and setting off. You know, mm. I think it's um, finding the balance between you know the the simplicity of 
um, you know, the nomadic traveller and, you know, coming back to, you know, I mean, a lot of people love being in their homes. They love, you know, having having this, but they still, uh, you know, they're still benefiting in looking at how you can simplify things. So I think it's about finding the happy medium there for a lot of people and not necessarily about, you know, packing up and moving to India. Although, you know, I... I highly encourage it because it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is awesome because I think it's uh, that's why actually I keep saying um, stepping outside your comfort zone because it's not necessarily that you stepped outside of your physical zone, literally yeah. outside of your country to get outside your comfort zone. You can get outside your comfort zone by just changing, you know, a single habit in your life. Um, so I totally agree with you there. The other thing that really resonates with me um, ab- about you in general is this thing that you keep bringing up, and I've noticed you've brought it up quite a few times in this conversation, which is the focus on relationships and and the value that just being connected to different people and being very open to those relationships and open to people, um, the value that's brought to your life and the opportunities it's brought to your life. I think it's something that is easy to talk about, but people don't really value it in in a practical sense. Um, and, And I'm keen to hear like obviously I talk about this a lot actually in a lot of my conversations in terms of you know I just happened to be open to this relationship and this communication with somebody and this opportunity happened and my entire life was optimized or my direction was changed and you know fantastic things came of it I'm I'm curious to hear some specific examples of how you opened yourself up to connecting with different people and how you know you, you really found the value in that You're listening to The Life Optimized Show with Dev Singh. If you're enjoying the show so far, remember to leave a rating and review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. You can also keep up with all the episodes and show notes over at thelifeoptimizedshow.com. Oh gosh, there's so many examples. I can actually give you an example of something that just happened yesterday. So this will even be a new story for you. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was invited, uh, usually when I stay in Dharamshala where I am right now, I stay at this uh, ashram. Uh-huh. Um, unfortunately, they didn't have any any rooms available this time. So I am not staying there, but I was invited by the guy who runs it now, Milan, for lunch he just said come for lunch he's from Kolkata he makes amazing food we always like to cook together so he put on a big feast for me and I arrived to find another uh, gentleman there I'd I'd never seen before and he was having lunch with us as well and he was a very you know he's um uh, I'd say probably you know early sixties, so quite a formal Indian man. Right. <laughs> you know, typical of, of um, you know many of the men that you'd find here in India. Um, uh, very formal in the conversation, <laughs> and um, we started chatting, and he wanted to know <laughs> Uncle G exactly, <laughs> Uncle G Sharma. Okay. We started chatting, and he said, "What are you doing here in India?" And I said, "Well, you know, at the moment, <laughs> I said at the moment, well, I'm working as an artist." And, and he said, an artist, what kind of artist? And I said, I'll show you. And I, I always carry a little um, uh, kind of, you know, flip book of my paintings with me and mm-hmm. uh, started showing him the, the paintings. And he started examining it. And he said to me, he looked at, I've got a painting of the Taj Mahal where 
um, the Taj Mahal is reflected in the water. Yeah, that's it. beautiful. But it's, you know, I take a lot of artistic, I take a lot of artistic license though. If you look at the detail of it, the Taj Mahal doesn't really look like that, mm. <laughs> you know, and the reflection isn't exactly accurate. But for me, I liked it that way. So I drew it that way. You know, I don't, yeah. for me, it doesn't have to be exactly representational. Anyway, he started looking at it and he took out the ruler next to him, you know, that was uh, on the table next to us. And he started critiquing it and he said, here you go, here's a free evaluation of your art for you. And he, he's, and you know, he proceeded to tell me all the errors. Really? Oh, wow. then he, yes. And he flipped, then he flipped to the next, uh, a, a few pages along and there was a, a camel, uh, you know, painting of camel. Yeah. And again, he critiqued it. He said, you know, the nose of the camel doesn't actually look like this. You know, this is what you should be doing next time you do it. This is how <laughs> the, you know, the feet are, the feet need to be bigger, blah, blah, blah. And he went through pretty much every, I'd say probably every second painting I showed him, he had a lot to say about it, a lot to say, <laughs> and a lot of criticism, you know, which, um, you know, for me, as I'm, I'm still quite new to the art world, um, you know, for me, it's, it's fantastic hearing the criticism. I really appreciate it because so many people just go, oh, I love it. It's fantastic, mm. you know, because they want to support me. So to have somebody who I don't know giving me this, you know, and he actually said, I'm giving you a free consultation, a free art critique. How nice uh, at of the him. end of it, he told me a little bit about his background. Turns out that he was an artist as well in his younger days. And he wants to give me an art, yeah, and he wants to give me an art class tomorrow um, so wow. that I can improve my technical drawing. So tomorrow I have a free art class, you know, and, and I think it's just <laughs> being open to those opportunities that come about, you know, like not... You know, at first, <laughs> at first when I sat down and he said, the very first thing that he said was a critique of my work, you know, and I'm, I'm still quite um, self-conscious about it. So to have that right up front, you know, it's very, um, you know, you feel very exposed when you show somebody your, whatever work you're doing, you know, whether that was when I was in product management, it was my product management work. Now it's my painting. You know, I always feel very exposed when you share with people, or at least I do. Um, you know, but because I was willing to share with him, and I was willing to his critique, um, you know, now he's going to help me um, with one of my paintings that I've been really nervous to do, which is actually a shiva, um, and another one of the Buddha. So you know, I feel really blessed to now have. Guy, if you can mentor me. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was obviously a very uh, amusing story and and quite funny. I'm very keen to hear uh, what happens after the <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> but like, it's interesting because I think the thing that really resonates with me about that is that you know you can get you can get opportunities for mentorship. I guess in a sense that's what it is um, in all these different areas of your life. In the most unassuming of places um, in the most surprising of circumstances when you're least expecting it. But I think it's for me, optimizing my business leadership and various areas of my life has always come from the most <clears throat> unexpected places. And it's, you know, I really, really take a lot of, um, a, a lot of blessing, a lot of gratitude in getting criticism. So yeah, look, uh, that was a really amusing story. Uh, very funny. I'm keen to hear what happens, uh, you know, in the to be continued when you have your lesson with them. Um, I, I think for me, the lesson I've got from that is that 
you know, mentors show up in the most unexpected ways. And suddenly the most, um, the, the lessons that I've been most grateful for and that I felt most blessed about have usually come in the form of someone turning around and having the courage or audacity or um, irreverence to, you know, criticize something that I do. And often people will offer criticism and they'll say, uh, you know, I hope you don't mind if I give you some feedback or whatever. And I often tell them that, look, this is a blessing. I, I don't get enough people criticizing me. And I don't say that to sound obnoxious or facetious, but <laughs> I think um, the fact is, is that most people go around the world looking for praise and looking for people to pat them on the back and looking for validation in a positive way. Uh, whereas I think if you care about your work, then you can actually, uh, you, you, you come to this place where you're humble enough to say that, you know, give me opportunities to actually grow. And that usually happens more through getting criticized than it does from people just congratulating you or patting you on the back for a job well done, which if you've done a job well done, then you probably already know it anyway. What you really want to yeah, know is how you could do it better. And I think that that's actually what, going back to my old, kind of line of work of um, product management. I think that that was one of the, the gifts that I was really grateful for, that, you know, working with um, agile methodologies, it's all about testing and iterating. You know, mm. you basically have, you know, for people who don't know agile, there's not really much that you need to know about it, but you, you test and iterate. So you test something, you try it, you see if it succeeds or fails. So you've got a yes or a no, <laughs> you yeah. know, did it work or didn't it? If it, if it worked, then you do more of it. If it didn't work, then you try something different. And I think that, um, you know, that's one of the things that's really important for, for me, not just in my work, but in my everyday life. And I think it's one of the reasons why I really, um, when I found out about agile, you know, product management, I thought, what a wonderful thing, because that's exactly, you know, my philosophy. <laughs> you know, you just, you've got to go out there and try it. And coming back to fear again, you know, you've, you've got to, that fear of failure, you know, it's it's always going to be there, but you do it anyway. <laughs> you know, sometimes you fail, and then at least it's an opportunity for learning. So, and I think so long as you are learning and growing from it, that's the important thing. Yeah. So, so it sounds like your your entire life is really like a, a pick a path adventure book. You know those little books that you get where <laughs> you open the page and you say, "If you want to do this, go to this page. But if you want to do this, go to this page." So, how, I'm, I'm quite curious. Like, how do you use your? I mean, if at all, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you do, then how do you use your um, your product management knowledge or, you know, agile methodology or, uh, you know, a Kanban wall um, to basically make these kind of everyday decisions about the direction of your life. Because one thing I admire about you is that you're, you're not afraid to constantly reinvent yourself. Um, you're not oh, no, particularly... I'm terrified. No, I'm, I'm, you're wrong. I'm totally terrified to do it, but I do it, I do it anyway. Well, you know, I think that that's... Okay, the, fair, fair enough. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah. But you're not you're definitely not paralyzed by that fear. You know, whereas most people I would say they're they're, they're afraid to take the action. You might have that fear, but you sort of carry it with you and you just go into that uh, you know, retransformation anyway. So that's interesting actually that you say that. I'm I'm quite fascinated by this because something that I'm really passionate about is always detaching myself from the label of being, you know, a business consultant or a coach mm. or this or that. I I kind of want to create my presence and my legacy in the world to be something more than that. You know, someone uh, was giving me a criticism on my website the other day saying that I went on there and I'm not really clear what you what you do. And I, I said to her that, firstly, thank you. I really appreciate that feedback. And I know that you're right about that. And 
I, I said, <clears throat> I know that people go to my website and there are a few different things that I've kind of got my hands in and fingers in. And it's not, you know, it's not targeted. It's not specific. It's not niched. There's not a, you know, one thing that uh, one particular product line or one stream. And at the same time, I kind of enjoy that. It's very unique because when I do meet people and I tell them that, yeah, look, you're absolutely right. I am going through a phase of just kind of exploring what I want to do. And I'm not afraid to say that in my sales copy. I'm not even afraid to say that in, you know, conversations that people assume are supposed to be about building my personal brand because I'm much more interested in building my life and building my character yeah. uh, than I am in just building one sort of marketing campaign. Uh, people really appreciate that. They admire it. But I think people get, most people get stuck. They don't know how to be so vulnerable, as you said. That's that's the word you used. They don't know, be, know how to be so vulnerable that they can actually detach themselves from, you know, being... Uh, Michelle the product manager or Michelle the artist or Michelle this and that and the way that I see you and maybe it's just because we're friends I don't know but the way I see you is that you're not just Michelle the product manager you're not just Michelle the artist you're just Michelle and at the moment in your life you happen to be you know working as an artist how yeah, do you how do you do that what do you get from it what's the deal um, like? yeah I, I think you're I think you're right you know I mean that's um, essentially you know I've, I've worked on uh a couple of things before I before I embarked on the more creative journey of um, of painting, I really wanted to know kind of why I was painting and and you know why would I want to share it with people? Um, and I basically came up with my mission, which is to spread as much sunshine to as many people as possible through creative expression and random acts of kindness. Hmm. And you know that's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to do. Whether I do that through painting or whether I do that through um, giving somebody a yoga class, whether I do that through helping somebody with their business, you know, that's essentially what I want to bring to the world. So I know I know my mission. I don't know exactly what form it's going to take. Um, and I don't really care, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, there's maybe I'm lucky. I've got a lot of interests. You know, I love painting. I love doing lots of different things. So, um, you know, and I think that, that just for me, just doing uh, one thing robotically, um, I don't think that would ever satisfy me. So, you know, having having lots of different interests um, definitely, you know, is is I think a good way not to get bored. But it also means that I've got lots of different ways to achieve my goal. Um, you know, which is essentially just to to spread sunshine, to spread as much prana. You know, in in you know yoga philosophy and and um, well, no, they talk about prana, they talk about life force, and that's what I try to bring to everything that I do, um, whether it's cooking, whether it's painting, whether it's, um, you know, technical product management. Uh, I don't think it matters, you know, so long as you're bringing as much light to things as possible, I think good things, you know, good things really happen, <laughs> you know, and it's being open to that. Yeah, yeah. What? Well, uh, I want to ask a, a bit of a random philosophical question. Um, if I hope I can answer it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to. Maybe you've already maybe you've already thought about this. I don't know. Maybe it's even part of those ten questions uh, from the best year sure, yet. Sure. But it's it's actually a very common question in personal development. Um, if you if you were to die within a couple of weeks, what, how would you want people to remember you? I think it goes back to my mission. I'd want I'd want that to be expressed. You know, I would want people to remember that that everything's possible. That that you can live a life full of. Um, full of happiness and full of uh, integrity as well and, and full of um, 
another word which I it's, it's probably one of my favorite words ahimsa which means non-violence and you know to just be able to to be remembered like that um, I will I'd be really grateful <laughs> really really grateful you know and are, are you still I think also just on that yeah. just you know being being remembered um, I think is is the important part <laughs> You know, I think there's so many uh, opportunities for, for being forgotten. You know, just the act of, of being remembered is um, essentially what's really interesting. And then, you know, obviously how you're remembered is important too. Yeah, yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. That, I, it's interesting that there's so much, um, there's such a level of service in your mission as well. Do you, have you ever been accused of being self-indulgent or self uh, self-absorbed because of your journey? Because I know there's a lot of things that I do from a place of, you know, curiosity or uh, exploration in life where I think people turn around and, you know, I, I really don't like to focus on uh, these kind of negative thoughts, but I think the fact is when you think about it, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of crabs in the bucket. There are a lot of people who yeah. uh, will want to keep you at their level because that's what they feel comfortable with. So when you kind of set out there in the world to do different things, or um, I know you've, you said you've had a lot of love and a lot of support, have you come across people who have tr- basically tried to cut you down or keep you back or, um, you know, keep you to themselves in a sense? Uh, yeah, not not from my close circle. Um, I'd have to say more from other travelers. <laughs> oh, okay. So, interesting. Yeah, that's, that's the interesting thing. There's a lot of competition out here. <laughs> you know, who's traveled the longest, who's traveled the furthest, all this type of stuff. Yeah. Um, but look, I've, I think... Um, I no, no no one's come out and said it to me. I think I've felt it a lot. Um, you know that maybe I am being a little bit too self-indulgent by doing what I'm doing. But I think when, particularly my family, when they saw how happy this all made me, uh, you know, everyone just has been really, really supportive and encouraging. Um, but yeah, definitely, it's something which plays on my mind a lot. Is um, you know, is it is it self-indulgent? But then, you know. But if I was in in Australia and working, you know, that's also kind of self-indulgent, you know, in in a lot of ways. Um, You know, whether it's for, you know, you're just doing stuff for money so that you can have the house, so that you can do whatever it is financially that you want to be able to do. I think that's equally self-indulgent. Um, yeah. At least this way, I'm I'm creating something that means something to me, and and luckily, um, so far at least with my art, it, it seems to be meaning something to other people as well, which I'm really delighted in. Yeah, there seems to be this interesting societal paradox that people feel if you're if you're in the race to keep up with the Joneses, um, even if you don't necessarily admit that that's what it is, but if you're you know, playing that game of keeping up with the Joneses, then somehow you're contributing to society because you're part of this big economic wheel and yeah. that's, you know, some level of service. But at least in my opinion, it's the most self-indulgent thing you can do because you're just, <laughs> you know, you're stuck in the matrix or whatever metaphor you yeah. want to apply to it. The point is, is that you're, you know, you're, you're, in, you're in a certain level playing by other people's standards. And I, I've, come to, I've come to accept that some people are actually happy with that. It's not that everybody has some sort of secret hidden burning desire to do what you do or do what I do um, and you know move to a different part of the world for a few months or a few years and you know just kind of explore life Um, I did it for a little while you know you did it for much longer I think some people are perfectly happy to just say that you know my idea of exploring my 
personal spiritual growth is to figure out what my next car is going to be or you know how I'm going to renovate my house and that's perfectly fine you um, you know none of us can really judge that but I do know that there are a lot of people who feel afraid of um, not only being accused but actually feeling like they would be selfish if they yeah, left the definitely. world if they left yeah. their families if they left their loved ones if they left their friends and I think there's two parts to it the selfishness and the loneliness as well so I'm wondering what advice you could share for the people who are experiencing the fear around those two things so again I think I'm lucky that I, I discovered Bestia yet just before I started traveling because um, through that, I identified who are the important people in my life that I really need to support, especially as a traveler. You meet so many interesting people. Um, every day I meet new people and, you know, every almost every single one of them could become my instant friend. In fact, a lot of them do. Mm. Um, but knowing how much energy and support to contribute to those friendships as opposed to the, the friendships that I know are going to be around for a really long time, um, Best Year Yet actually helped me to identify you know, who is important in my life um, and what roles do I really want to be playing with them? Um, and, you know, I know who's important and I make an effort to make sure that I stay in touch with them, that, you know, when I travel back to Sydney that I do something really meaningful with them, that I help them out as much as I can in whatever way. And I guess the other thing for me is that when I was living in the same city as a lot of my friends and family, I was working so many hours, I didn't have any time or energy to help or, or really contribute in any positive way anyway. So, you know, a lot of the time, you know, you're working six, seven days a week to get, you know, whatever job it is that you do done. The rest of the time you're, you know, maintaining a house or, you know, doing all the daily chores that you need to do. And um, in a way I actually find it easier to contribute positively to my friends' lives now than, than when I was in the same country as them. Um, so I think that just because you're in a separate country, it doesn't mean that you can't, that you've abandoned people. And I really wanted to make sure that people don't feel abandoned by me, um, particularly my immediate family. You know, that's really important to me. Um, and I think that there's, look, we've got all the technology available now to stay in touch with people. Um, you know, you don't have to, just because you are halfway across the world, it doesn't mean that you have to excommunicate yourself from your society. In fact, I think it's... Uh, in a way, it's almost easier to maintain some of those relationships at a distance because you know that you have to make an effort. And what about the loneliness? The fear of loneliness, I should say. Uh, I, the fear of loneliness, I think, I think I'm very fatalistic and uh, I think that, you know, so long as you're not lonely on the inside, you'll never really be lonely. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. I don't really get that lonely and I don't really ever get bored. <laughs> I've generally got a lot to, to occupy me. Um, I know from, from my experiences, traveling in India, I don't feel alone because it's both within the travel community and also most of the local communities that I've stayed with. Mm -hmm. um, it's It's friendly to the point of exhaustion <laughs> you know you sit down in a cafe by yourself someone will start talking to you immediately <laughs> you know within a few seconds of ordering a chai you've got a, a person talking to you so there's not a lot of um moments where i've actually really been alone 
in India. Um, in other countries, I felt more alone. Traveling in America, I feel very lonely, <laughs> you know, because I don't, and, and same in Australia, I don't think that there's the culture of just striking up a conversation um, and the curiosity, the, the, the sort of childlike curiosity that people seem to have when they come to India to find out more about people. Mm. Um, maybe it's the type of traveler that comes here. You know, for me, I, I studied anthropology. I love talking to people. I love finding out about people, about where they come from, what they do, you know, even the boring things like how they do their washing or how they wash their hair in a bucket, you know, things like yeah. this are really fascinating to me. Um, maybe not so much to other people, but, um, you know, it seems like in India at least, um, people are very open to uh, open to conversation and uh, you know you'll be you'll be talking to somebody um, at a bus stop and the next minute you know you're meeting their whole family and they've invited you into the house for dinner you know so I still have a community around me I think wherever I go in India it's very easy to find that community and so long as there's a community um, I think loneliness for me just it kind of evaporates you know I don't feel it as much yeah. Um, and then, like I said, you know, also, you know, making sure that I know that I've got my community, you know, around the world of, of friends and family who are there. And if I am feeling a little bit lonely, I can call them. Yeah. I, yeah. That, that piece of advice that you said was amazing. I think if you're, um, if you're not lonely on the inside, then you're not really going to be lonely anywhere. And I think also I have to, I have to admit that there probably is a level of, um, people's intrigue because of the contrast. So when I go to India, for example, there are parts where I'll go to India um, where, you know, I do have that experience of people talking to me randomly, but mostly <laughs> I don't because I, obviously I look Indian, so I just kind of blend in as much. But when I go to, say, Southeast Asia, it's virtually impossible for me to be alone. I mean, lonely is a completely yeah. different thing, but, we're, you know, we're talking about just being alone as in getting not getting approached and finding it very difficult to build a community around you a similar situation in eastern europe even when i was just out on my own uh, you know traveling a few different places i got approached um a fair bit and you know just had conversations with people randomly and very friendly in northern europe same sort of thing uh, it was really nice and when i went to london um i had very similar experience to here probably because it was more normalized and if I'm, you know, maybe if I if I look a little bit more like a tourist, um, I, can, I can sort of I can sort of get a conversation out of people. But mostly, um, you know, I found there were times in London where it just seemed like a really lonely place in a very happening crowd, whereas there were other places which were, you know, very um, not seemingly very social, but it was very easy to make friends and very easy to connect with people because there was that mutual curiosity and intrigue. But I think the lesson that I really extract from this and something that I carry with my life in general, and I'm guessing that you do as well, whether you do it consciously or unconsciously, is coming from this place of this mindset of anthropology, uh, which is really being curious about what makes people tick. And I would say that even this show is um, in itself kind of anthropological in the sense that I'm always having conversations with people mm -hmm. trying to figure out their cultural influences, their sociological influences, their, you know, personal influences from their life experiences and what is the accumulation of all of those experiences and values that come together to inform their decisions about how they live their life. And much in the same way, if you go with that curiosity, 
as opposed to always trying to find people to fit with and connect with just because you're afraid of being lonely, then I think you're going to get a lot more richness out of life anyway, because um, once you put aside that fear of loneliness, you have a lot of space for that anthropological curiosity to allow, incidentally, a lot more people in, in fact. Yeah, yeah, I I couldn't agree more, you know. um, I was actually contacted by a, a girl that traveled in India with me about two years ago. Um, she said, can you, can you please talk to my friend? She's in India and she's alone and she doesn't know what to do. And, uh, you know, can you just have a, have a Facebook chat with her and tell her what she should do? <laughs> yeah. that, that seemed like a little bit of a strange, uh, you know, strange thing to do. The girl doesn't know me or anything. Um, mm-hmm. But she contacted me on, on Facebook straight away. Turns out that she's... Um, actually not that far from where I'm staying at the moment. She's about a, a 12-hour bus ride away. Okay. And she was saying that, um, you know, the, the thing that I got from her was that she's lonely and she's a bit scared. Hmm. <laughs> you know, she was saying that she's had so many people coming up to her and talking to her that it's actually freaking her out, you know. Oh, okay. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, whilst being, being open is one thing, but you've got to be... <laughs> you've got to be open in the right way as well. You know, I know a lot of, particularly, look, my experience in India um, is as a solo female traveler. So I have a lot of stories from other solo female travelers about their experience in India, which for the most part has been really different to mine. Um, You know, most of the girls that I speak to have had a lot of difficulty with the culture in terms of, you know, men harassing them or, um, you know, people being mean to them or being followed or being touched or, you know, which, whatever it is, mm. um, you know, and I, and, and I think some of it is about respecting the cultural values of what you, of the place that you're in, um, you know, making sure that you are actually, you know, whilst being open and, and loving and kind and compassionate and all this type of stuff is lovely, um, you know, you've also got to respect the culture that you're in and know that there are certain boundaries and and rules essentially that you have to conform to um, that can actually make you make it easier to then know when to open up and when to kind of guard yourself off a little bit. Um, so I think that you know, in terms of of you know fear and vulnerability and things like this. Uh, it's really important to know, and uh, I mean, this is sort of, you know, whether you're traveling or whether you're in a city, in your hometown, in your city, whatever, you know, knowing when to open up and knowing when to maybe retreat a little bit is actually really important. So a couple of episodes ago, I had a friend of mine on uh, who is a cultural intelligence expert, Charlotte Oberg. I can't remember which episode it was, but it was a couple of episodes ago. And one thing that came up, which which I thought was really interesting to talk about, and there wasn't a clear sort of conclusive answer to this, obviously, was this idea that in, um, you know, there's a theory in evolutionary biology that in evolutionary psychology that we sought for differences as a threat. And what that basically means is that we're always looking out for something that is, you know, dramatically different in the environment so that we can process it as a threat. And by default, we can either, you know, uh, fly or we can fight. So a fight and flight response kicks in. And there's a question that comes out of that, which is, does that mean that we are, you know, inherently biologically programmed to be racist? So... It was an interesting conversation. Uh, you know, um, I, I know you haven't had a chance to listen to that particular episode yet, so it'd be cool uh, for you to check it out as well. I think you'll enjoy it. But 
I'm curious to get your take on this. Having not only going through you know all these different countries that you've traveled in, um, in in the circumstances that you've had, but also coming from this perspective of looking at the world through the lens of an anthropologist, and also on top of that, you know you happen to spend so much time in a lot of different parts of India, which, in my opinion, is quite possibly the most racist country in the world. But I have to agree. I mean, it is, it's really challenging here um, to understand, you know, obviously there's, you know, everyone talks about the class issues and everybody makes, you know, Hmm. quite a big, uh, quite a big deal about the class issues. And I actually found the racism um, harder to understand, you know, and I think it is, look, there is a, there is a fear of the other. I think not just in India, obviously, but everywhere, you know, when people, um, uh, when people don't understand something, they generally fear it. I think that that's what it is. And I think, um, you know, whether that's, look, if you're, if it's between two different races, they call it racism, you know? Um, but I think it's really prevalent here and it's really quite shocking to see. Um, I've got friends who are from the Northeast states of, of India where they look more to Tibetan or um, some of the Japanese and um, yeah exactly and they uh, you know they've been refused rooms in um, places like Dharamshala and Goa Um, they've been refused meals at restaurants really wow (laughs) you know the amount of yeah yeah and you know and and, uh, you know obviously they they sometimes think that they're either coming from Tibet or Nepal as well. Mm. Um, and then there's also, you know, the um, just, you know, the different mix of people in each state. Um, and, I mean, you see it, you know, you really see it when you're on the trains or when you're at the, the intersection points between communities. You know, everyday life here in Dharamshala, you don't really see that much racism yeah. um, because the majority of people here are Himachali and, and the rest of Tibetan, the Tibetan community, and then there's a bunch of foreigners. The thing that I'm in awe about um, in India is the fact that even though there's racism and even though, you know, surely you, know, you see in the press over there all of the horrible things that happen in India, you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, you know, uh, just with the elections that um, happened just this week, um, mm. actually here in India, you know, there was a, a lot of violence and a lot of deaths and uh, things like this, you know, even though it's a democracy, there was still a lot of rivalry between the Hindu and the Muslim communities and and whatnot. And yet, even within all of that, things just seem to flow, you know, every everyone still just gets along and gets everything done you know it doesn't matter that it's like it's kind of like it's open racism it's okay to be racist here in a weird way that's yeah. the understanding from an outsider perspective that of what i of what i can see you know it's like it's just sort of socially accepted that you know if that you're going to be nicer to your race you're going to give people of people of your kind you're going to give them better prices you're going to give them better service. <laughs> um service <laughs> um you know but i think you know from from a foreigner perspective it was actually quite interesting 
Uh, when I was in Kerala, I was working with a technology company and just prior to arriving in Kerala, I had fractured my ankle. Um, I didn't know that it was actually fractured at the time. I was just sort of hobbling around, uh, you know, wondering what was wrong with my ankle and, and mm. slowly but surely it started, you know, swelling up bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and I thought oh, I should really go to the hospital and get it x-rayed. So I, my colleagues told me where the hospital was. I got rickshaw, I went to the hospital. And if you've ever been to an Indian hospital, they're usually quite chaotic and there's lots of people um, oh, yeah. you know people everywhere people who need emergency care are left aside <laughs> for long periods of time um, you know the waiting period is is long <laughs> mm. very very long um, and this was the second time that I'd been into an Indian hospital so I sort of knew a little bit of what to expect anyway I arrive and I go to register myself asking if I could get an x-ray and see one of the doctors and within about five minutes, they called me into the room ahead of a bunch of other people and realizing what was going on, realizing that, you know, I was the only foreigner in the hospital and they wanted to, you know, usher me through quickly. Um, I was feeling really guilty and I said to them, no, 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 there's people waiting, you know, and everybody was sort of pushing me to just go into, like literally pushing me to go into the room and, you know, being on, on one foot, um, <laughs> I sort of just, you know, accepted that and, and got my x-ray and, and was quite looking forward to getting out of there. Um, anyway, I told my colleagues when I got back to the office, I said, oh, I feel kind of guilty, you know, like there are all of these people there and, and you know, they, they, they took me into the consultation room ahead of this old woman who really looked like she was about to pass out and this other woman with a child and da-da-da. And my colleagues said to me, well, what, you know, what do you care? You pay double for everything when you're here. You know, you, you have to, you know, wait for everything else. You know, you don't get um, the best service. You, you have to pay double in the rickshaws and everything. So mm. if they let you in the hospital quickly, good for you. <laughs> you know, that was the attitude. And I just thought, well, you know, things, you, you just kind of have to accept that, that things aren't always fair and it's just kind of the way that it is sometimes here. Yeah. Uh, and, and everywhere, not just in India. You know, things aren't fair in Australia either. You look at the asylum seekers, you look at, you know, any <laughs> any minority group uh, within Australia, you know, um, things aren't fair. I think they're just a little bit more obviously unfair here. Yeah, it's amazing how yeah. um, good Indians are. I find it really amusing how good Indians are at, um, at kind of rationalizing and justifying uh, based on this idea of karma. But it's, you know, everything is kind of adjustable and negotiable and everything is okay. But then you're in a place where there is so much focus on karma and dharma and religion and spirituality. It's, it's definitely a country of uh, paradoxes and contradictions. And I think it's not just India. <laughs> like this is one thing I've learned traveling the world. Um, India is probably something that I can refer to more as an example because I've been there more often and, you know, it's sort of, um, sort of my homeland. And uh, so I can relate to it more. But uh, actual fact, there's a lot of countries that are like this and it comes from, you know, a lot of different variables. And um, it, it does make you appreciate that, relatively speaking, we're probably really lucky in Australia uh, to not have that much chaos um, in, in the system. But there is an organization and order to everything anyway. Anywhere you go, it's just a different way of things being organized or a different way of things being ordered. And yeah. and something and it is, it's the systems of it's the mm. systems of classification, I think, that change for for different cultures. You know, it's like how 
um, what we classify as a bathroom in the West might, you know, might be different in India, let's say, um, you know, and, and those, it's, it is, it's the systems of classification that are really interesting to understand. And once you understand how a culture classifies things in general, um, yeah. you know, the environment, people, objects, um, food, religion, you know, how it classifies things, I think changes uh, changes everything and, and you know having a deeper understanding of that for me enables me to I guess live in India without too many headaches yet anyway <laughs> yeah I, I would say that something that probably helps you with that as well is curiosity and just like as we've mentioned a few times in the conversation um, this idea that you're coming and approaching the world whether it's your existing world or new worlds that you're going into uh, from this place of curiosity and it's something that I'm pretty passionate about encouraging other people to adopt um, and, and basically the way that I see it is it's it's the opposite of holding on to things sacredly because the more you hold on to your beliefs um, the more you know the less space you have for being curious and open to new experiences new opportunities and just new concepts and new ideas that might prove more useful than any pre-existing notions that you have so I think you're in a pretty good place uh, given not only your personality but also your personal experiences your professional experiences just your life journey in general to kind of share with us some wisdom about how does one go about actively making themselves more curious because surely it's not just something that you know you can just say that you're either born with it or you're not tough luck um, if somebody wants to be more curious but they just find themselves not as open-minded they're kind of they find themselves being narrow-minded more than they'd like to be <laughs> how can how can people become more curious so i think the thing that i've learned um definitely through the experience of painting actually is that you can really practice anything and become better at it um you know if you particularly i don't know curiosity is such an interesting thing um if you if you do practice something like I mean you know to be curious you have to ask questions, um, you know you have to have lots of exposure to different things, um, and I think that the more you know the more you do it the more that you'll become curious. I think it's the same with art as well. Like you don't I think creativity and curiosity are, are really intrinsically. Uh, linked I think that there's a there's a way that you can uh, cultivate that within your life and it is really just by practicing it literally every single day um, and noticing the changes you know having a marker of, of like a way that you can track the, the growth you know are you getting are you becoming more open to ideas you know when you meet somebody new are you are, are you engaging with more <laughs> you know or, or are you sort of still hanging back um, you know working out how you can uh, how you can move faster into that space I think is is something that you really can practice you know I mean I, creativity in particular I think um, you know people always think oh you've got to be born, born with creativity I certainly thought that um, and for years I thought I wasn't good enough you know I wasn't creative enough to be an artist um, and then I realized, you know, if you practice every single day, practice anything every day, you're going to get better. Um, you know, maybe not to the point of, of pursuing it as a career immediately, but, you know, so long as you, so long as you can focus on the little 
little bits of improvement every day. Uh, I think that that's what's important. Yeah, and even even as a career, I mean, why not? If you practice, you know, long enough, and you practice enough, there's this idea of mastery, right? Of ten thousand hours, and uh, I mean, some people can test that exactly, but the idea is that persistence has a lot to do with it, and you can, I think, if you can work on your curiosity as a skill as opposed to thinking of it as a uh, personality yeah. trait, uh, then it actually makes you even more powerful than people who do just take it for granted because it gives it just gives you access to more resources that's how i look at it it just yeah, it just means that it just means the world is more at your um you know at your beck and call you just have more people to dial to you have more people to you know more friends to phone in on if you uh, if you need help you have more you just have more of everything have you read um luke williams disrupt uh no i haven't no it's a really good read and one of the things that i really liked about it um just in terms of curiosity and creativity and things like this um uh there's one tool i guess that he he proposes you use to try and um work out how to create a disruptive technology or a disruptive idea Mm -hmm. um and it's basically asking what if you know what if you know um the world was flat what if the world was round <laughs> you know um you ask those kind of questions and suddenly you've got a whole conversation a whole um set of new ideas that come with that so you know and and you can basically if you I mean, if, you, if you just look at inverting whatever it is whatever idea you have if you turn it on its head and, and invert it, what does that do? If you scale it and you make it huge or make it tiny, what does that do to it? Um, you know, I think that that's, you know, there, there are books out there that can actually kind of teach you how to be curious and how to look at the world in a new way, um, just giving you a, a new lens to look at things through, I think is, you know, that's, that's a tool that I'll never forget. Um, you know, I think I... I already had that tool I didn't have the language to go with it to be able to communicate it to other people and that's what that book gave me so yeah highly recommend it (laughs) okay cool nice I'll, I'll have to check that out um yeah I think a mastery by Robert Greene and um George Leonard also wrote a book called Mastery. They also have those similar uh, principles in them as well. And they teach it, obviously, in the context of how do you master any kind of a skill uh, or, or any kind mm-hmm. of thing that you want to master in life. And I think that's what it's about, really. It, it is ex- exploring things from a place of curiosity and you know having the courage to be afraid of stepping out of your comfort zone and doing it anyway. And just a lot of things that are reflected in the way that you live your life it is the ultimate form of personal development, personal growth, self-exploration that a lot of people can find in books. But I really believe that there's no substitute for, you know, for actually going out there and doing it yourself. And on the same token, I think probably the next best thing is having these kind of conversations, um, you know, with, with people who have those experiences. And obviously, when you get out there and step into the world uh, with that, uh, with that perspective of curiosity and really wanting to learn and wanting to know what everyone you talk to has to offer whether you know it's a a fellow traveler who's having a pissing contest with you to see who's traveled more miles or (laughs) it's someone who wants to you know critique your artwork (laughs) it's um there's always something there's always something to learn and look it's it's been a really it's been really great having you on the show as well just to wrap up i'm uh, conscious of time as well there's a question that i ask all of my guests that come on um, 
and I'll, I'll ask you as well. And I'm quite curious if you have any any kind of stories uh, from your travels around your answers to these que- to this question, which is kind of in three parts. And the interesting thing is that I think you're probably someone who really has a very full range of experiences in each three of the domains that the question asks, which is, what are your top three tips for anyone who's looking to optimize their business, leadership, and life based on all of your life experiences and all of your lessons along the way? Uh, top three, that's interesting. Um, I think I would say the first one would be self-inquiry. Um, it's something which comes up a lot in uh, the type of meditation that I do. I, I do vibrational meditation, which is known for 10 days of silence. Um, yep. And, you know, I mean, like most meditation and, and yoga as well, it's um, one of the core things is, is self-inquiry, you know, know yourself, look, all the answers are within, everything that you need to know. I mean, they say everything you need to know about the universe lies within. Um, I, don't have, I don't have that kind of insight yet. <laughs> I know about my life, um, you know, and, and that's a good start. I'm happy with that. You know, if I, if I have that, um, you know, in this lifetime, I'm, I'm content with it. Um, top three. It's an interesting, uh, interesting dilemma to have because <laughs> I think they all come down to self inquiry, <laughs> you know. But I think it's also like we were talking about, you know, just um, you know, the test and iterate. You know, um, don't be afraid of the, the failure. Um, you know, just allow yourself to to go out there and and try new things. Um, and the third one would be, you know, be creative. Um, you know, try to always tap into your creativity. Um, they say also that, you know, the more you tap into your creativity, the more you tap into your intuition. Um, I, I was told and I firmly believe that meditation really helps with that. Um, if you can tap into your, your intuition, your creativity grows exponentially. And the more intuitive you are, the more that you can just approach everything that you do with more ease and less fear. So I think that, I think that that's my top three. <laughs> cool. I like them. I like them. I think, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting how you were afraid of coming up with three, but you did it anyway and you got there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the first one kind of covers everything, you know, it, it really is, you know, once, once you, if you're, if you're willing to look within, you know, it means that you've sort of conquered, you've conquered that first level of fear. You know, yeah. I can't tell you how many people have, have said to me that they're terrified of sitting Vipassana because it's 10 days by yourself, with, with yourself, you know. Mm. Um, there was a girl that I met at the last Vipassana who just before we went to go and, and you know, into the silence for 10 days, um, she confessed to me that she was absolutely terrified. Um, and we just started chatting about, you know, I was trying to sort of, uh, you know, just have a normal conversation with her, not about Vipassana or anything. And I asked her what she does, and she told me, you know, she was a florist. And then she told me that she was um, she married. And I said, how did you meet your husband? And she said that they met um, base jumping. Oh, okay. <laughs> and and they were both base jumpers, you know, both uh, base jumpers. Mm. And I said to her, so you're, you know, you're afraid of going into Vipassana, but base jumping is okay. Jumping off a building, yeah. <laughs> not knowing whether you're going to to succeed or not you know she's not afraid of doing that and yet you know this idea of self-inquiry seems to really scare a lot of people um and i think that if you once once that's covered um everything you know your intuition your creativity all of that is just so much more easier 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. To be honest, I'm not surprised by that at all. People are generally afraid of the jumping into the depths of themselves and jumping off a plane or off a building, um, just because <laughs> you don't know what you're looking at. You can't. You can't really see the bottom or the ground, and nobody's there to give you an induction, really. But I think that's a great thing about Vipassana. I've spoken about it a couple of times in a couple of other episodes as well, actually. It's come up, and uh, there is actually instruction. And if you do approach it like a skill to be learnt, um, self-inquiry as well, then you realize that it doesn't have to be such a scary unknown. Um, you can gradually step into it as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mishi, it's been really good having you. Uh, I think we'll have to wrap it up there, but uh, let's keep chatting. And just uh, for everyone's, um, you know, kind of knowledge, where can they find out more about you? And particularly, you know, I'd encourage everybody to check out your artwork because it is really beautiful. Um, I've actually bought some of your art as well, uh, which was really nice. And and yeah, I want to I want to help um, actually not just direct people to your artwork, but really help you share your mission because I think it is a very beautiful mission thank you <laughs> um, of course if anyone is interested in checking out um, my work um, you'll find me at tales and fails it's t-a-l-e-s and fails.com um, or you can connect with me on Facebook um, we'll put that all on the I assume you'll put that on the website <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. so um, yeah and look at um, I'm really keen to get um you know, my vision out to as many people as possible. And, you know, like I said, my my mission is to share as much sunshine, as much prana with people um, through my paintings, you know, and I'm looking for, you know, any, um, any, you know, collaborative opportunities to be able to do that. Always open to ideas and suggestions. Um, at the moment, I'm working on a, a big India collection called Everything is Possible. And, um, you know, I stand by that. I really think that everything is possible and it's been really beautiful to get the feedback about my my collection you know there but um you know there was one woman who bought a painting from the collection because she wanted to share with her children that you know everything is possible and um you know i really hope that 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 is um you know something that people can can tap into and connect with yeah i remember that story actually that was really lovely yeah <laughs> all right cool cool Michi. thanks so much and um yeah, look, all the best with your adventures to follow. And uh, yeah, look forward, to, look forward to maybe having you on the show again when, uh, you know, you got something else on the horizon with your next adventure. Um, sure. Well, I'll be going to Sri Lanka soon, so <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> all right. You take care for now. Bye. Excellent. If you enjoyed this episode of The Life Optimized Show, remember to visit thelifeoptimizedshow.com. Leave a rating and review on iTunes and help spread the word with all your friends and networks.